we we long to live in the real world because that's what we are a part of. Mm. You know, we are not physical entities as the physicists would define us to be. Mm. Right? We are not what science says we are. We are corporeal entities that live in a real corporeal world that have souls that are not subject to the constraints of space, but are subject to time that ultimately harken back to a center, an eternal realm that is the source of intelligence and mm. intellection mm. as distinct from reason and rationality, right? Reason and rationality, logic, these things like go in sequence, right? But intelligence happens instantaneously. Welcome to Lucas Crobot Show. I'm Lucas Crobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Episode 282. It's a palindrome today, and it is actually recording on April 12th, but we'll be releasing this episode a little later in middle of May sometime. And today, it's a little bit of a different episode. We haven't had guests on the show very recently, but today we have Dr. Richard Smith, who is a PhD uh, mathematician and entrepreneur. He studies cycles and builds financial tools for people like you and me who don't really trust the big financial situ or, uh, industry or uh, institutions all the time. But we, we know that we need to figure something out. So we're going to be talking about his financial entrepreneurial side towards the end of the show. You do not want to miss it. We're going to be talking about that inverted yield curve we've been talking about. We're going to be talking about where we are in the macroeconomic cycle of the globe. But before that, today, we are going to be discussing Wolfgang Smith's work, uh, the vertical ascent. Now, Wolfgang Smith was born in Vienna in 1930, and at 18, he graduated Cornell University. He actually, he actually met, uh, he actually met Einstein as a boy, and he studied next to John Nash, who was the the mathematician from A Beautiful Mind, brilliant genius who took all of his mathematics and physics, and he blended it in with philosophy and how we view the world. And so Dr. Richards, Dr. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Wolfgang Smith started the Philios Sophia Institute, philosophy, Philios Sophia, yeah, in initiative. And now that is being run by Dr. Richard Smith, who is nestled away in the mountains of West Virginia, where I'm sure we all wish, wish to be. Uh, Richard, welcome. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucas. It's great to be here. And uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I just want to add, yes, Wolfgang graduated at 18 with three degrees <laughs> in mathematics, physics, and philosophy at 18 years old. And by the way, no relation. We're both Smiths, uh, but um, we're not uh, blood kin. Uh, Hopefully, spiritual kin, but uh, <laughs> but not blood kin. <laughs> Indeed, can what was the since we're going to be talking about the the initiative, the Philia Sophia initiative, and mm -hmm. Wolfgang's work uh, specifically yes. in the beginning half of the show. But what is the the vision and the heart behind Philia Sophia initiative? Why does it exist? What does it do? Who are you? What is it about? It exists to promote the work and understanding of Dr. Wolfgang Smith. 
Um, and that work in particular is really about restoring our sense of the cosmos and restoring our humanity and correcting the misunderstandings that dominate and pervade society today that what Wolfgang Smith calls scientistic belief. Mm. So he wrote his very first book back about 40 years ago, and it was called Cosmos and Transcendence, just recently republished by Philo Sophia. So we're actually republishing all of his books, and he's going through each one. Uh, he's 92 years old now. He's still amazingly prolific <laughs> at wow. 92 years old. Every wow. day he's working, he wakes up, you know, and uh, and starts thinking and writing and until he goes to bed at, you know, midnight or two in the morning. <laughs> and uh, um, so it's, it's really amazing to watch him work. So, but the subtitle to his first book was Breaking Through the Barrier of Scientistic Belief. So, and so science, scientism is distinct mm. from science. Scientism, okay. and we'll get into this, is an ideology that is... Uh, the ideology of the metaphysics that scientists have adopted um, in lieu of traditional metaphysics. So what, so what he's not breaking past the barriers of the scientific method per se. No, but he's, no, a, he's, a, he's a scientist. He loves science. <laughs> what he doesn't love is the overreach of science, which is a limited epistemology, a limited process, mm. a method, right? A modus operandi, a way of knowing our world but not, it doesn't know the whole world. It knows the world in part. And to then elevate that to essentially call what the scientists know all of reality, right? To try to, because scientists are, you know, involved in reduction, right? Trying to get down to the atoms and then we got to atoms and then they found that those weren't quite solid and you got into the quantum world, et cetera. Right. And then trying to recreate all of reality from that when, in fact, you know, the power of the scientist is looking through a narrow slit, mm. right, narrowing your view. But then to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that everything else about life is an illusion, right, <laughs> that uh, only what the scientist sees is real. Um, we'll get into that. So breaking through the barrier of scientific belief, you know, is is kind of recognizing the power of science and the value of science, but also calling it out for its overreach. I mean, even that, that phrase degrading our humanity, that phrase scientific belief, scientific, scientific <clears throat> belief. It's almost yes. as if he's hinting that science has become its own religion, that science Absolutely. has no longer been, been about the scientific method or understanding what we can Yes. see and believe and testing and developing uh, hypotheses and theses and coming to right. understand how the world works in a better way. But then it's moved beyond that into uh, a faith system. And then that faith system begins to color the way that scientists view the world or physicists view the world because they're, yes. you, you we're talking about reductionism and that in science, we keep on looking for the smallest Adam, what makes up the world and how the world works. And it sounds like your argument is that by focusing on the parts, we miss the whole. That's a big part of it. Yes. So in 
I guess what book is along his way is that his latest book is the vertical ascent, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. And so in it, what is the overarching question that he's begging us to ask that he then answers in the book? What is the overarching theme? So just going back kind of through his work, right? He first published Cosmos and Transcendence, where he introduced this idea of scientific belief. Mm. Um, and then uh, not too long after, he wrote a book called The Quantum Enigma. And The Quantum Enigma, um, Wolfgang, having a background in physics, you know, was focused on physics. And The Quantum Enigma is the measurement problem in quantum physics, right? Where you have um, quantum mechanics, right? Where you have these waveforms, the Schrodinger wave equation, right? But then as soon as you measure a quantum system, you have what's called the uh, wave function collapse and you get a particle instead of a wave, right? And that takes place only when an instrument measures or detects something in the quantum world. Okay. There aren't particles in the quantum world, right? Particle only happens when an instrument detects, interacts with the quantum world, right? And so that is the quantum enigma. And that's been in science now for nearly a hundred years. There's not really a resolution of this still today. And so Wolfgang explored it from a, an ontological perspective and, uh, and, um, had a quite a breakthrough in his book, The Quantum Enigma, so can which we, leads us to the can we talk about today. Can we talk about this this concept that you just threw out? You yeah. threw out this. I mean, I, I understand it because I've I've read about it in, before, and it's quite yeah. fascinating. But I know there's many many people who have no idea what you just said. Just like sure quantum. Uh, ontological it's just can you describe what what's what's happening in this experiment with a wave collapsing down to a particle how does that work and why is that significant in the conversation that we're about to have can you like tell it in like almost story form for us well let's take a step back for just a minute and the most important distinction that people need to understand to understand Wolfgang's work is the distinction between what he calls the corporeal mm-hmm. and the physical. Okay. So the corporeal world is the sensible, perceptible world, the world that we live in, right? You can touch it, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can see it. It's got color, form, right? It's the world that we all live in and have our being in. Okay. It's a world that I can see you and you can see me. I see that your desk is brown and your shirt jacket is, is plus. And it's a world of both qualities and quantities. Okay. Mm. So physics, starting back with Galileo, right. And then going through Descartes and to Newton it is dealing with the physical world. Okay. So what is the physical world? The physical world is what you can measure. So if you can put a ruler on it, 
You know, if you can measure it in centimeters or in grams or in seconds, that act of measurement is what the physicists do. Okay. Mm. In fact, I think it was Lord Kelvin that Wolfgang quotes often said, physics is the science of measurement. Okay. Gotcha. So think of all the things you can measure, right? You can measure your height, you can measure your weight, <laughs> you can measure your blood flow, your blood pressure, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't really measure love. You can't measure care. You know, you can't measure purpose. Kindness. So there's all anger. these things, kindness, yeah. you know, all these qualities, right? Yeah. Qualitative things that actually are the most important things to us, right? You talked in the beginning of your show about purpose and truth. Absolutely. Well, scientists, those are not measurable, right? They're not quantifiable. So the physical world is the world, you know, roughly as defined by the physicists. Okay. It's, it's what we can measure and it's, it's quantitative, mm. right? You are stripping out the qualities and you're only focusing on the quantities. Okay. Right. So you have the corporeal world, the world that even scientists live in, right? Scientists don't look at their children and say, oh, come, come here, my little, you know, quantum bundle. <laughs> Let me give you a hug. Right. <laughs> right. No, you know, science uh, in its quest to kind of limit truth to only what can be measured, what can be objectified. Right. Um, and then to try to recreate all of reality, you know, from those parts. Uh, that's a mistaken ideology. And mm. it's not the ideology that scientists live in their daily lives, right? Mm. It's, uh, that is scientism, right? When you say that only things are true that can be measured and quantified and objectified and that we can all agree on. Right. 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 Um, that are outside of us. And this is uh, kind of was formalized by Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am, right? <laughs> that was his famous dictum. And he divided the world into two parts. One he called res extense or things that have extension, things that are measurable, right? And the other one was res cogitantes, which are the things that are inside of us, our thoughts, our feelings, right? Our soul, and our emotions. Our soul. And, and Descartes actually made reference to God. Um, but that idea of the Cartesian bifurcation, okay, of breaking the world into the kind of objective measurable things and the subjective non-measurable things, right? And then the world went on this kind of, you know, for the past four or 500 years has been on this outward focused measurement, control, technology, science direction, which has led to incredible power, right? Right. And so all of those things that are part of res, res cogitantes are just kind of considered, you know, second-class citizens, mm. if you will. Right. So this is a very, this is, this is the key distinction that anybody who wants to understand Wolfgang's work has to understand the distinction between the corporeal, again, what all of us regard as reality, yeah. right. And then the physical, which is basically what Descartes started with res extense, the things that have extension that can be measured, right? It can be quantified and that that somehow is the truth, 
Mm -hmm. right? And that we're going to reduce everything to that. And then we're going to build everything back up out of that. So So. to understand Descartes in the physical, this is the physical realm, deconstructed everything into its smallest part that he could know. And scientists are still working to find what is this, what is the smallest quantum that the universe is made of? And we get string theory and, you know, I'm nothing but a density wave that is slightly different than your density wave. And there's a other density waves between us, but that really makes us know we're not distinct from one another in that regards. And then they try to rebuild up the parts into the whole without putting the whole back together. It's still just a series of right. disjointed parts. Yeah. And it's a lot like, say, um, an anatomist who's going to uh, kill a frog, right? Dissect it, study its anatomy, measure it, right? And then try to recombine those things and bring the frog back to life. And say no. what frog like you know, the frog is doesn't come it. back to life. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. When you take it apart, you know you you kill it. You destroy its life. Right. And science has not produced life. They've recombined parts of life, right? But they have not produced life. Mm. And you know, so today you have artificial intelligence, et cetera, right? In my PhD work. I worked at the Santa Fe Institute for a little while. I studied complexity science, et cetera, right? I studied in a field called artificial life. And the idea of artificial life, it's in a computer, so wasn't building Frankenstein, right? But uh, that you're going to mix and match the right kind of um, uh, algorithms, right? So you're going to have little you know, entities in the computer, right? They forage, they gather food, they have a metabolic tax, they mate, they reproduce. You know, you're trying to set up certain conditions that mimic life and then look for so-called emergent behavior, okay? <laughs> so um, the emergent behavior doesn't happen, right? You combine all these things, you can make it faster, you can make it look more and more like lifelike, but you do not get intelligence. You do not get life. You know, you get algorithms, you get mechanism. Um, you do not get the corporeal world, mm. right? You get the physical world. You get a world that's strictly a quantitative world and it lacks the qualitative attributes that most of us regard as, you know, the essence of life, things like purpose, truth, etc. So understanding the corporeal and the physical is the key distinction, right? And so what Mm. Wolfgang has shown is that this bifurcation, this Cartesian bifurcation, dividing the world, you know, into the things that you can measure and defining truth as an act of measurement, right? Uh, That takes you down a certain path, a certain metaphysical path, right? A certain ideological path that you're going to then, you know, regard religion as superstition, you know, and qualities as just, well, you know, we don't know what they are, but they take place inside of us and uh, we can't really measure them. And so we're going to regard them as, you know, just something that we put in the background and don't really pay a lot of attention to, Mm. right? While we go build stuff and do our technology and and, uh, try to break things down further and further. Okay. 
So that insight is what led him to kind of address or understand this problem in quantum physics and quantum mechanics, the so-called measurement problem, you know, as actually arising from the limited way that scientists understand the world, right? And that that's not the whole world, right? That we have this corporeal world that we live in and we have the physical now quantum mechanical world that the scientists have identified, but there's a discontinuity between them. There's a chasm, you know? Mm. And so, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the physics. I'm not actually a physicist myself. I come at this from the mathematician side okay. and then my, my PhD was in systems science. Um, but suffice it to say, there's a huge gap between the quantum world and our corporeal world, right? And when an instrument, which is a corporeal object, you know, it's a device, right? It's not purely quantitative, <laughs> it's corporeal. When that interacts with the quantum world, which is non, which is purely physical, right? It's not yeah. corporeal. Yeah. Um, that creates this wave function collapse. And that's the so-called quantum enigma. So correct me if I'm correct me if I'm wrong. When if I remember what the quantum enigma is, which is <clears throat> it's Heinsberg uncertainty principle. Is that correct? Where there's a wave no, that's being shot. Not and, exactly. And you're seeing that the wave that there's probability of where the electron will hit. But the moment that you observe where the electron is going, instead of hitting the screen in a waveform, it's just sitting in the right. exact spot that you observe. So the moment that the electron is being observed, it changes its behavior to do exactly what the observer saw that it was going to do rather than acting as a, a wave a probability, probability wave. spread when it's not right. being observed. Is, this, is that kind of what we're talking about where that wave yeah. then all mm -hmm. of a sudden collapses? Because that is yeah. one of the most fascinating things to me when it comes to physics and science or quantum physics it's a mystery it's like how, how yeah. does this happen what is happening yes. here exactly and it remains a mystery a hundred years later right it still has not been explained and it the absence of an explanation has led to things like string theory and like to the multiverse right mm. now we're postulating that uh, there's not just one universe, right? There's a universe of universes, right? That, and that's so overlaid to, within our universe, <clears throat> wouldn't that just be what what? No, like in parallel to around? our universe, right? That there's separate realities, and this is a this is a very unscientific idea because it's pure theory. There's no possible experimental evidence that can establish the reality of a multiverse because you can't get any signal from one universe to another. There's no way of verifying the idea of a multiverse. It's a purely theoretical idea, right? So talk about the distinction between scientism and the scientific method, right? The scientific method is an empirical, verifiable, measurable you know, process and method, right? But if you're gonna talk about a multiverse where you can't have any communication it's a purely speculative idea, and you're going to call that science when it can never be empirically verified. Now you are in the realm of ideology, right? You are trying to fill gaps <laughs> that mm. you can't fill through your scientific method now by displacing traditional cosmology, 
So going back to what is the vertical ascent about? The vertical ascent is Wolfgang rediscovering traditional cosmology that explains, you know, what our nature is, what the nature of the universe is, and um, and to distinguish it from the cosmology of scientific belief. This cosmology that's built up strictly from the idea that everything real is measurable and quantifiable, and that out of this investigation into the measurable and quantifiable, we can then recreate the whole universe and mm. life itself, right? Mm. Which is, that's a, it's not true. I mean, that's it- not the true nature of the cosmos. It's not the true nature of reality. And traditional religion and early Greek philosophers, et cetera, all agreed that the cosmos is tripartite, that it has three different um, ontologies, if you will. Okay. There's the corporeal world that we live in and breathe in. And this corporeal world is subject to constraints of, of time as well as space, okay? Um, And that's really, you know, the world that we're perceiving, Mm -hmm. that we're sensing, it's where the senses reside, right? But then there's the so-called intermediary world. And the intermediary world is subject to time, but not to space, right? okay? So it's subject to the constraints of time, but it's not subject to the constraints of space. Things that you know seem to be in two different places can be in the same place at the same time, right? Space goes away in the intermediary world. Mm. And then beyond the when you're when you remove space and you remove time, you have what uh, Thomas Aquinas called the eternal world, which is really Wolfgang used the image of a circle, right? As that he calls the cosmic icon. The outer boundary is the corporeal world subject to space and time. The middle area is the intermediary realm. And then the center, the point in the middle, right, is the avaternal. Mm. And this this permeates every uh, aspect of the intermediary and the corporeal world. And it's actually the source of the intermediary and the corporeal worlds, right? And this is the traditional cosmology of Plato, of Christianity, of uh, Hinduism and the Vedic tradition, et cetera, right? And so Wolfgang is rediscovering and reintroducing us to this traditional cosmology, which we have forgotten, we have lost track of, lost sight of, because our cosmology has been defined by the scientists right. as being only those things that can be measured and quantified and it, that we can all agree upon and that we don't have to get into any fights over. <laughs> well, right? Because it, it seems like what we've been told from science uh, is that we are just a bag of chemicals. We're a bag of electronic impulses. Yeah. and it really takes the soul or the purpose out of hum- humanity. It takes, yes. Uh, yes. well, wh- why would it matter if I did something like, why, why does it matter that I keep my word? Why is it important to us that right. you broke 
even from a child, if you break your word to a child, it really means something to them. Yes. And so this might be a, traumatic. A, ta- a tangent of a question, but it seems like right now in, in culture that that idea that we are just tangible uh, atoms floating around through space. And then when you die, you just go back into the dust. And so what does it matter? You're, you're just right. a, a sack of chemicals. It seems yeah. like, and I could be totally wrong on this, but it seems like when we carry that to its conclusion is, well, since I'm a sack of chemicals, how do I know what I'm experiencing and knowing is actually knowable and therefore nothing is knowable? And we're almost undermining that entire scientific gism with absolute uh, postmodern, post-deconstructional <laughs> uh, yeah. relativism. Are those, Absolutely. Are those yes. interconnected? Because that's where I'm seeing culture going. They're saying, we're nothing but a sack of yes. chemicals. It's all science. And then the next sentence is, and so nothing's knowable anyway, so why does it matter? There is no such thing as morality. Absolutely. And, you know, you, we're just all part of a big, right? We don't have any personal responsibility, no personal accountability, no purpose. You know, it's just particles wandering endlessly, ultimately headed to an entropic death. Yeah. And, uh, and hey, you know, that leads into the culture that we're in today where anything goes, nothing really matters. And, and the only um, force is power and influence and celebrity. Right. And so, and, and the truth is what the authorities or the influencers say it is. And there's no more critical thinking. There's no more taking personal responsibility and thinking for yourself. Right. Mm. We're told what to think. We're not taught how to think. And that was an incredible, I don't know if you listen to Jordan Peterson, but it, I'm still, I remember he interviewed this young woman from, that had escaped from North Korea and yes. she escaped by being a sex slave through yes. China. Right. And, uh, and then she made it to South Korea and she attended some universities there. And then she went to Columbia university mm-hmm. and, uh, cause her father wanted her to be educated. And so she managed to get herself into Columbia university and J- Jordan Peterson said, well, how was that? And she said, it was the worst thing I ever experienced. Unbelievable. It was no, it was like, it reminded me of North Korea. You, that you were just there to be told what to think. You weren't there to be taught how to think. And Jordan Peterson was like practically in tears. You know? And he's saying, you must've had at least one good professor. You know? And she said, no. No, the whole thing was a total waste of time, right? So that is where we've arrived at from this degradation of our individual humanity, of our, the very nature and idea of a soul, right? That your soul mm. matters and mm. that you have a soul. No, in this, because the soul is a resident of the intermediary world. The soul is not subject to the constraints of space. It's subject to time, but it's not subject to space. And so the soul actually has its home in another world, right? Not in the corporeal world, right? But with this, and, you know, science has moved past the corporeal to the physical, right? The strictly quantitative, right? So, 
and science, you know, is the scientists are the new priests of our world today, right? Scientism. Scientism, right? It's not like if we look at the pandemic that we've just been through and the public health response to it, right? It was just, hey, just trust the science. Just trust the scientists, right? Which don't is so, experiment for yourself. You know, don't <laughs> just do what we tell you to do. Okay. Oh goodness. And if you don't do it, we're going to vilify you. We're going to you're going to lose your job. You know, we're going to um, uh, what's that called? You know, when you get wiped cancel off of Doc's social you. media, you're going to cancel you, right? Cancel culture. And um, so this is all part of this authoritative centralized, you know, uh, propaganda based, what I call fiat Mm. reality, right? We live in a fiat world today. You know, and you want to talk about finance a little later on, we can get into that some more, but that is where this metaphysics, this religion that scientists have created, which is scientism. Okay. And it's not the scientific method again. You know, when you're getting into things like the multiverse and super determinism, mm. these are not scientific propositions that can be falsified. They're not falsifiable. Right? Well, they're really metaphysics. It's almost and as they're if, metaphysics. Yeah. It's almost as if they wrote a science fiction book and then they say, yes. oh, here's a science fiction book. Up oh, now it's the Bible. Here's yes. here's a fiction of what I think yes. might could be. And then we're gonna build a bunch of yes. theories around that and call that science. And since there's no way to deny it, there's no way to prove it. And therefore this is truth. Absolutely. Yep. And they have the power, right? They're the authors of that fiction. Mm. And so, and we're to just believe what they say because they're the scientists. This is the exact thing that the scientific method was, you know, first inspired to oppose. Doesn't that make you angry? Because they didn't want to be told what to do just by the priests. Uh, Now they are the priests who are just telling everybody else what to think. And they're making up fictions to displace the traditional understanding of human nature, right? That human nature is gone. We're not humans anymore. We're just little electrical impulses that now we're going to live in the metaverse, right? It's all going to be digital. See, the digital technology world is actually the scientists and the technologists, the technocrats, recreating the world in their own image because the digital world is a closed system. Right. The digital world doesn't suffer from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle or the quantum enigma. It's a completely controlled, closed system. Right. Where everything, you know, the the parts do add up to the whole. Right. Right. You don't have irreducible wholeness in the digital world. You just have parts and then they get to define the holes. Right. Correct. The W-H-O-L-E-S. They get to define the narrative. Correct. And so now everybody's moving into the digital world as if this is some kind of liberation well, when it, actually it's a, it's a captivity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a liberation from, it's a liberation from the unknown. It's a liberation from God, if you will. It's a liberation from morality. 
it's a liberation from, you know, uh, even in the intro of our, our show, we talk about, you know, truth. What is truth? And I, I get pushback sometimes, people saying like, well, you know, that's, you know, that's not truth. You know, that's just your opinion or that's just, you know, talk about something scientific, not something that's uh, metaphysical. But it's right. almost as, as if you and give me well, something measurable. Yeah, something <laughs> measurable. But what you're saying is that the truth is more than a bunch of small parts that then are uh, uh, divided and subdivided to its smallest form, then put back together. But it's yeah. it's something larger than that. And in many ways, going to that metaverse is a, a means to escape the actual reality that we live in and the consequences of that reality that we live in. Yes. And it's getting, uh, there are fewer and fewer people who know how to do much in the corporeal world, you know, to, to move things around. Right. Am I out here in the woods of Virginia? My neighbor next door has a, uh, a heavy construction equipment business and he's, you know, got highway contracts, et cetera. Right. Yeah. He can't find people to work. Yeah. He can't find trucks to buy. Mm-hmm. Fuel has gone through the roof. Crazy. Right? He's got a business in the real world, right? Moving stuff around. It's not bits and bites. Yeah. It's rocks, yeah. you know, and snow <laughs> and, uh, and people, you know, moving stuff, driving stuff, right? It's not all automated. It's not robots. And uh, those businesses are suffering mm. because we've lost touch with the corporeal world. You know, we've denied the primacy of the corporeal and we've bought into the narrative that the measurable and the, the physical is where it's at and that the academy, you know, and the scientists, uh, everybody needs to get an education, you know, be, be have a higher education. Um, but, but, but you know, no. But Dr. Richard Smith, what you don't understand is in the metaverse, you can push snow around too, but just on your digital tractor. I literally, I have a colleague, he works with me in my business and uh, he told me digital land is going to appreciate faster than, yeah, than physical land, For sure. right? And right now it is, right? Like I, I follow the web three in the metaverse and I have some authentic interest in it, you know, and we can talk about that. I think there is validity to it. I think there's validity to Bitcoin and to blockchain and yep. to these ideas. I think yep. that they do, you know, potentially help move power from the financial digital world and the digital world is natively financial. Mm. Okay. So everything in the digital world is a transaction. Mm. Yeah. Everything you do online is a transaction and that's getting more and more explicit, especially now that you have blockchain technology where you literally can have an exchange of value around data and you can have sovereignty over digital assets, which is amazing. Especially it is for, amazing for it's amazing. Creative, right? And incredible. It, it holds the potential to get our digital selves, right? Because we do have kind of digital analogs, if you will, sounds like an oxymoron, a digital analog, <laughs> but, uh, or a digital avatar of our corporeal existences, mm. right? Everything yep. we do that is digitized is kind of a piece of our digital selves. Yeah. Right. And right now we don't control that, right. That's in 
all the walled gardens of Apple and Facebook and Google and Amazon and the government, right? All these um, institutions and centralized entities that are, um, you know, essentially, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but sucking our digital blood, you know? Oh, that's <laughs> so, true, though. It's definitely true. So, the, you know, the idea of Bitcoin is that you, that was the first instance of having sovereignty over a digital asset. And the potential there is that we can actually start to own our digital footprint, our digital selves, right? Just like, you know, we, we take our corporeal bodies and we walk into a store and we pull out our cash and decide whether we're going to spend money. We have control over that. Mm. In the digital world, we should have control over that too, right? We should have sovereignty yes. and a we self should. that can, you know, go into a store and leave it we should. Know, and not necessarily have to leave anything there. Right. But instead, they know more about us than we know about ourselves. Absolutely. In the digital world. Right. So, um, which is why Bitcoin is not going to become the new world currency. That's a big conversation. <laughs> okay. That, that's a big, big digressive conversation. I, yes. first, I want to say I resonate with that. I feel uh, recently, yeah. especially over the last, really the last four years, but then with COVID. Uh, the last two years, it felt like most of my relationships and most of my work has been become, as I've described it, meta relationships. Everything is yes. being mediated, just like our conversation right now is being mediated by uh, one, two, three, a lot of screens. I don't know how, how many screens yes. I have in this room. Yep. Uh, and I was growing tired of the fact that every everything that I'm doing, even when I'm you know, writing or copywriting, consulting, brand consulting, it's all being mediated by something digital. Even as you said, yes. anything in the digital wor world, a keystroke is a, a micro transaction it with is. the digital Absolutely. world. Absolutely it is. And, and so, they're being captured. Yeah. You know, as computing power expands, um, they're being mined. And that that has led me in ways to begin to start businesses in the corporeal, uh, corporeal world, corporeal world of, yes. You know, it's led me to move out into the woods, absolutely. you know, like over the weekend, my kids were out tapping birch trees to get sap out of the birch trees to make so syrup. So amazing. You know, and think about that experience, like two brothers out in the woods, why figuring out how to get sap out of trees as opposed to sitting down, oh, man. you know, killing, killing in video games. Why is that right? something that we long for? Why, why is that something because that's our nature is that we corporeal? Yes, we, we long to live in the real world because that's what we are a part of. Mm. You know, we are not physical entities as the physicists would define us to be. Mm. Right. We are not what science says we are. We are corporeal entities that live in a real corporeal world that have souls that are not subject to the constraints of space, but are subject to time that ultimately hearken back to a center, an eternal realm that is the source of intelligence and mm. intellection mm. as distinct from reason and rationality. Right. Reason and rationality, logic, these things like go in sequence, right? 
but intelligence happens instantaneously. It's what Wolfgang Smith calls vertical causation, mm. right? And this is how he, you know, his before the before the vertical ascent, he wrote physics and vertical causation. And what he says about the quantum enigma, this is where he first introduced the idea of vertical causation, that this quantum world that the scientists have um, mathematized, okay, the quantum world is a purely mathematical world, right? It's only when there's an interaction with a corporeal instrument, some corporeal detector, that you get a particle, right? The wave function collapses and you get a particle. Hmm. That that is actually the act of the corporeal world. The quantum world is, an, is a world of pure potential. It's a world of potentia, okay? It's not reality. It's not real. It's just a mathematical world. See, it doesn't have any corporeality. See and that, when the detector... Say, say, back up, I'm going to pause you. Say that again. That the realm of physics is a realm of potential, but the, yes. the realm of, of uh, the corporeal world is actually reality where those potentials yes. become realized? Yes. Mm-hmm. In the quantum world, you have mere pure potency, pure potentia, right? And this is an Aristotelian idea, actually. So you have pure potency, right? And then it's when a corporeal object of some kind interacts with the quantum world that a particle emerges and you get actualization. So, our- And that's the vertical causation. It's actually mm-hmm. the corporeal acting on the physical or the quantum, okay? And it's it's incorrect to think that this world the quantum world which is a world it doesn't actually exist right it's a pure mathematical object it hmm. doesn't have any corporeality to say that you're going to create reality out of that quantum world that leads you to you know speculative fictions like the multiverse which is not scientifically verifiable so the vertical causation and the inspiration for the vertical ascent, right, is this idea that the higher, well, that there is an ontological hierarchy, right, and that the higher actually actualizes the lower, not the other way around. Wow. Wow. So meanwhile, you know, at this point, look, ultimately, people have a choice, right? And to me, what's been, what Wolfgang has shown me, and I believe in why I care about his work and why I want more people to know about it, is because I think it does ultimately bring us back to a choice, right? And it's, it's, it's ultimately an issue of faith, right? I believe that the scientific world is a faith-based religious worldview, right? Uh, that has that is attempting to define truth as only the things that are measurable, right? That we can touch, smell, centimeters, grams, seconds, time, space, right? Or we can uh, affirm what tradition has affirmed for millennia, right? That we are. Um, that we live in a corporeal world, that it is the real world, right? That we have a soul, 
and uh, and that there's even um, something beyond the soul. Mm. And then there's something beyond that too. What and Wolfgang, being a Christian and a Catholic, would call the kingdom of God. And so we have to choose what metaphysics we want to affirm. We have a choice. And when I look at it, I'm not that impressed with the scientific metaphysics, with the technological metaphysics, right? That, as you say, reduces, you know, strips us of our humanity and makes us just electrical impulses interchangeable, you know, mm. actually burdens on the planet, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, we're like uh, contributing to global warming now. And, uh, you know, we, we should kind of be, you know, planet would be, be better off without us. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So um, if that's the future that you, if that's the message you want to give to your children, right? If that's what you want them to believe, then you've got the right metaphysics. But we have to acknowledge our metaphysics, right? We have to acknowledge where this science, scientific ideology and metaphysics has taken us and where it's gotten us to. And now that we can see that it is a metaphysics and that it is an ideology and that it's not falsifiable and it's reached overreached the scientific method, we have to begin to question its ethics and its consequences and whether or not that's what we want to affirm with our free choice, right? And so this is where, you know, look, I grew up in Los Angeles, <laughs> you know, in the 80s, in the 90s, I went to Berkeley, you know, went on to get a PhD. Uh, I was not religious, but having been through the academy, right? Having gotten to the PhD level, sought the truth, realized that no, they just wanted to be the new priests, tell everybody else what to do, right? And that this world that they're going down, you know, this path that they're going down is one of in, inhumaneness and narrative and control. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, you know, so more of us are waking up a little bit, realizing that we have a choice, that we have a responsibility. And then we can return to our religious traditions and we can revivify them mm. and we can reconnect with them and try to understand them better and see the value that they have in them for Catholics like me. Now is the time it's Lent and we're coming up on Easter, right? There is such richness in that tradition of like how to, what to do during Lent and how to see yourself better and know yourself better and become a better person, right? These are all wisdoms, right? Wolfgang calls them the sapiential traditions. Sapiential essentially means wisdom, right? That enrich our qualitative lives, connect us with things like purpose and truth, right? Mm. Technology world, they don't want to have anything to do with that. Just binge watch your Netflix, you know, binge watch your Hulu, get onto some kind of, in some kind of metaverse video game world and just be part of the endless transactions that we're going to monetize, by the way, you know, and uh, don't go out in the woods, <laughs> you know, can't make money. We can't off the woods. make any money off you if you're out in the woods. <laughs> don't take personal responsibility for your own health. You know, just do what we tell you to do. Don't worry about your immune system, you know, go eat crap 
drink crap, just get the vaccine. It's all going to be okay. No, gosh, this is no, this is no way to live, you know? And the escape from that is the rediscovery of traditional cosmology, the re-acknowledgement of what it means to be a human being. So you, and you use the, the word rejection here. of this scientific ideology, mm-hmm. which uh, cannot even acknowledge our humanity. So you talked about uh, faith, spirituality, uh, you, you, the, the phrase uh, cosmic, what was that phrase you just used? It lost it. Traditional cosmology. Traditional cosmology. Besides the fact that you are coming from a Christian Judeo worldview and Christian Judeo mm-hmm. background, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I could see how some worldviews, you know, Hinduism or Buddhism, for instance, where everything's just an illusion, it's just, you know, we're in a dreamlike state and one day we'll wake up from this Maya, this illusion, and we'll integrate right. with Nirvana and probably mixing up both. Hinduism and Buddhism right now, I think, uh, but they're, they're close. So I can see how that is a complete denial of the corporeal world to say that we're walking through a dream is a, a complete denial. So I can, I can clearly see how some major re- religious worldviews really go in line, especially when you see new, the New Age movement that's spreading across really the globe. Um, mm-hmm. New Age is really just spreading everywhere. Uh, you know, this, the blending of yoga and, and those spiritually connected, excuse me, uh, those spiritually connected um, meditations and traditions. Mm-hmm. But what is it that has led you to say that, well, it's the Christian Judeo worldview through Christ. That is the, the right worldview. That's kind of an audacious thing to say with, I can't just allow that without any like backup of, of what brought you to that point or why do you think that? Why not another worldview or religion? Why the Christian Judeo worldview? Well, for me, uh, that is my native worldview, right? That is the air that I and my, you know, ancestors over the last 2000 years have lived and breathed. And it is our land. It is our spiritual land, right? And it is a wisdom tradition. So leaving aside for the moment, the question of, uh, is it the supreme wisdom tradition, which um, is a very difficult and subtle question, and one that can lead to uh, misunderstandings Mm. very readily, right? And especially when it's oversimplified. Right. So would I be a Christian Catholic if I didn't think it was the the correct worldview, right? (laughs) The supreme worldview? No, I wouldn't. I'd be something else. So obviously I believe it, but I also, and uh, Wolfgang himself, you know, the, one of the most striking things about him is he spent considerable time in India with yogis hmm. in his early life, 
right? And it made a deep and profound reverential impression on him that never left him and that awakened in him a spiritual interest in his own tradition, which was the Christian Catholic tradition, Hmm. right? And so Wolfgang will be the first to tell us that we have much to learn from the Hindus and from India and from the yogis, that they take their spirituality seriously, right? And that we need to rediscover that same fervency and that same elevation of the spiritual that he witnessed in India in our own spiritual traditions. So, you know, that is what I would say Mm. that for me, after being on many different spiritual paths, you know, starting from the Lutheran church into Berkeley, (laughs) into, uh, uh, scientism, you know, 12 step stuff. That was an amazing experience seeing, you know, the 12 step world. And I felt like I had discovered the real churches in America. Right. And then spent some time in meditation and Hinduism, spent some time in, um, this, uh, world called the fourth way, Gurdjieff, Uspinski. Ultimately, I longed for, uh, my roots and to bring that, those experiences and that wisdom back to the tradition that I was born into, Mm. right? And also to give me a language to have spiritual conversations with my own family and my own children, right? That's an incredible thing to be able to actually have a spiritual relationship and a spiritual language with which to you know, make sure that your children don't get lost in this right, right. physical, you know, unreality, right? To elevate these qualitative aspects of life to something of importance and centrality, mm. right? Mm. So that is our tradition, right? You know, could I have gone down a Hindu path? I was, I was going down a Hindu path for a while. You know, I didn't want a Hindu name. I didn't want a guru. So my choice was to go back into my own wisdom tradition. And I think we can't get away from it. And we should embrace it. And we should rediscover it. And Mm. we should uh, revivify it. Mm. That's a fascinating answer. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I do think, I do think that there is, and we don't talk about it enough here on our show. I I try to bring it in, um, as often as I can, but there really is a, a spiritual realm that we live in. There is a spiritual reality that it feels like in Western culture, at least, I don't know if bifurcated is the right word. You've used it a lot, so I feel like I should use it. Mm-hmm. But it feels like it's been bifurcated. I feel like it's been divided. Yes. Where we yes. do a lot of things almost irrationally because we do yep. believe in this spirit realm. We've seen, yep. we've seen dark fig- figures. We've had the dreams. We've woken up in the middle of the night with the weight on our chest. We can't be able to breathe. You know, people have had these... 
uh, spiritual experiences, and we've had experiences yes. of light where we feel uh, the presence of uh, of God. We 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 see miracles, things that are undeniable with our eye or or even interactions with people, and yet we put that to aside in culture, and we almost act as if those things don't exist. It's almost in as if in yes. our real life we. We operate as if we believe in the spirit realm, knock on wood, for instance, or whatever other superstitious behavior you might have. But then when we have rational, logical conversations like these, like these, we throw that out the window and we talk intelligently where we say, well, well I mean, we, we know that all that doesn't exist. No matter how many horror movies I watch on Netflix, I know that that's not real. And yet, that's what I engage with. And so it just feels like this very self-contradictory. Schizophrenic? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 It's schizophrenic. It's schizophrenic to say that we can't perceive reality. And yet we're living in reality every day. We are perceiving it. Right? But you know, then, going back to the first to say that preface the only to reality... his first book. It was like, my objection to the scientific worldview is that it regards the world as unperceivable. Yes. And it presents it as a mirage. No, it's the real world. Speaking, so it's the real world. Speaking of the real world, we live in a real world. And I love that <laughs> you do work in a real world. And oftentimes, I personally, I can tend to bury my head in the sand in the real world because I don't know if I'll actually actualize my potential. I'd rather stay in my dream state world that, you know, something that's happening across the globe, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's in Wall Street stock market. Well, what does that have to do with me? You know, really. And even if, mm -hmm. even if I did yeah. know what's going on, what could I possibly do? What, whatever is going to happen is whatever is going to happen. And that's just my lot in life. Uh, currently, I guess it was about two weeks ago now, it was the middle of first week of April, about last week of March, first week of April, the, the yield curve inverted. And maybe people are listening. They don't even know what a yield curve is. Uh, we can we don't have to go into the, the the mechanics of it so much, but why is that significant? What should we do about it? And we've talked previously that or mentioned previously that you work in cycles. Where are we in the macro cycle of economics, macroeconomics, or just where we are in the cycle of the world with geo? politics <laughs> and and this is kind of a multi-part question but then i want to ask and so what i don't want to stay in the physical theoretical world of okay it's gonna snow outside i want to know what do i do how do i then go push that snow how do i go and interact with the physical realm so that i'm not just left a victim running to the metaverse Good. Well, uh, you know, yield is, is the interest rate 
that you get paid for loaning money for a period of time. Normally, if you're going to loan money for a short period of time, you'd expect to earn less interest than if you're going to loan money for a long period of time, right? And there's lots of different durations of loaning money, right? So the most famous yield curve inversion is when you have two-year treasuries from the U.S. government paying, you know, say two, two and a half percent. And then you have 10-year treasuries from the U.S. government, right? And so recently, back in early April, there was more interest being paid per year on the two-year than there was on the 10-year. And how does that happen? Okay, so you were getting like two and a half percent on the two-year and you were getting 2.4% on the 10-year per year. Is it the market that decides that? The market decides that, yep. So that's the so-called inversion of the yield curve. And why is this significant? Because oftentimes uh, when there is a yield curve inversion, particularly when the two years are paying more interest, have a higher yield than the 10 years, it's a harbinger of a upcoming recession. And so the way that that would happen is a bunch of people are all of a sudden wanting to buy two-year bonds more than they want to buy 10-year bonds, which causes Mm -hmm. the sale price to go up. They're saying that the near-term cost of money, right? That what they can do with that money is more valuable today than what they can do with it over the next 10 years, right? So that's essentially saying that there's going to be less growth, right? And so we don't care what happens in 10 years. We care about what's happening in the next two years, and we got to get our work done now. So we need that money. We're willing to pay more for it now so we can get done with it before the bad times come. Gotcha. Right? So that's the idea of a yield curve inversion. So going back to your other question, where are we at in in the cycles, right? I do believe that we are at a uh, a 40-year low in yields that dates back to the 70s Hmm. and 80s where you had Paul Volcker and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to, you know, 20% to try to tame inflation. And um, I think that, you know, ever since then, we've been in a 40-year decline of those yields, especially longer-term yields. And now we are starting to, that's starting to change, right? We even went into negative yields. We're still in negative real yields, right? But uh, right. so that is fundamentally starting to change. And I think that's going to go on for decades. And I think it's what I call, you know, the end of the financialization of everything. Okay, I have right? a couple questions. So for 40 we... years, the financialization questions. of everything, the financial engineering with cheaper and cheaper costs of money, hmm. right, has been um, suppressing the value of things in the real world, right? And so now money is getting more expensive and it's gonna keep getting more expensive. And so things in the real world are gonna be more valuable. That's the, the simplest. So you have commodities going up, you know, stocks will even go up for a while, but many stocks are, are purely financial companies at Mm -hmm. this point. They don't Mm -hmm. have real world assets. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they just have digital assets. Like what is Robin Hood? You know, what kind of real world assets does Robin Hood have? No, they're, they're a financial company. Right. And so 
you know, those, fi- those purely financial assets are going to go down in value. They already have gone down in value significantly, right? And, you know, like my neighbor's business where he's got to move rocks, you know, like that, that's going to go up because things are going to have to start being done in the real world again, you know, mm. <laughs> in the corporeal world. We can't live purely in this physical fiat world right? And fiat, what kind of currency do we have today, right? We have fiat currency right? from when Nixon took the US off the gold standard. There was no longer any mooring to any kind of physical reality. I mean, physical, I have to be careful about physical, Mm. corporeal reality, right? Because we're using physical and corporeal in a technical way here as defined by Wolfgang Smith, right? Right. So um, I want to bring, I want to bring back gold is a corporeal uh, entity. I want to come back to uh, something you said, just to understand. You said that interest rates have been real. Interest rates have been negative, and is that because inflation is higher yes. than the interest that you're going to get on a bond? So you might yep. get three percent on a bond. Yeah, but but it's if interest. interest if inflation is five percent. You're losing your real yield is minus two percent. Your real yield, and so. What that means is interest rates, you're saying that we're at a 40-year year low. What that mm-hmm. means is mm-hmm. that interest rates are going to begin to rise. So my question yes. is, there's been a lot of talk of, of hyperinflation. Do you mm-hmm. think that we're heading in a direction of hyperinflation, or do you think we're going to see something that we saw in Japan where there was inflation for a while, and then as interest rates kicked in, there was mega deflation and mega depression, not just a recession, which is Japan yeah. done digging out of that hole? I don't know. You would know. So is is that more of the direction that we're supposed that we're expecting so. to see? I think so. I think the Japanification of America is a reasonable thesis. And yes. So what especially does, if people stop having children. And and anatolism is on the rise. So yeah. Uh, Fear, fear not. I, I don't think that that is going to be reversed anytime soon. Sadly, yeah. uh, but what does that? Because we've been what convinced that, that we're bad for the planet. Oh, it's horrible! It's horrible! I, it's horrible. Episode two hundred and seventy-seven, folks, just talked about that at length. Uh, but what does what does that mean? What what do I do? What are the practical things that you do? Yeah, well, you right learn now, how to do. You learn how to build something. Again. Sitting as a victim, <laughs> you. Uh, I think you invest more in your local relationships, right? In your local enterprises. You know, you do not have to give your money to an institution to put it into an index fund. You know, like going back to this idea of the soul, right? I'd like to write a book called Investing with Soul. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I think that finance has been turned into the ultimate machine. You know, I think the United States has um, uh, kind of lost its um, its moorings and its integrity because of its exorbitant privilege of being able to print the world's reserve currency and and it has become a financial superpower more than anything, right? And, you know, we are having trouble with our supply chains now because 
you know, it was all financialized and we don't know how to build things anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that there's this kind of retreat going on from globalization. Mm. Some people call it globalization. <laughs> and uh, I think that's going to continue. So I think, you know, things are going to contract. Um, things are going to become more local. And I think that's actually a better way to live. But yeah. it's going to be a painful process because um, we've gone so far in the other direction. It's going to be a shock and a big adjustment to start to um, uh, retreat a bit. Do you think and we will slow see, down? Do you think we'll see the de-dollarification of of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency and going back to gold? You, you mentioned that gold is. Corporeal. I don't know if it'll be gold, but I do. I think that's actually part of what's going on with this war right now between Russia and the West. Yeah, right? it's really a war between Russia and the West. India has not come out against Russia. China has not come out against Russia. Yeah. You know, and I think all three of them together have some legitimate beefs with the way that you, the United States, you know, is running the financial, the global financial system yep. right now. And that's a, it's kind of a terrible power that we have. And, um, uh, you know, I am not saying that um, we can't recover from that, but I think we have to rediscover the soul of what it means, you know, to, uh, to be the global superpower, mm. you know, and we have to act with the good of the whole in mind and not just with our own advancement and power in mind. And, um, and I think that, you know, the financialism, financialization of everything, which has been going on for, you know, 40, 60 years now, um, has gone too far. And uh, so I do think uh, a friend of mine called it World Financial War One. Huh. Not World War Three, not kinetic World War Three. It's right. World Financial War One that we're in the midst of right now. I can now. see that. And uh, so it's going to be a lot more volatility, a lot more uncertainty. Um, going back to what I'm doing in my professional life, I'm developing financial technology to help people understand risk mm -hmm. and to be able to factor risk, mathematical risk, right? In financial risk into their financial decision-making, right? And to start to work with risk, you know, instead of just, as you said, sticking your head in the sand. Yeah. You have to understand the risks that are out there. There are risk signals, you know, that markets are processing every day, right? And, you know, we have the ability to be savvy financial decision makers, but we have to be looking through the same lens that professionals and institutions are using to understand the world of finance. And as I said, I think the internet is natively financial. So, you know, these are things. And again, it's, it's a personal responsibility question, right? Do you want to abdicate that and outsource that to somebody else? No, thank you. You know, right. I don't want to put my money into an index fund because I don't like what a lot of the companies in an index fund are doing. And investing is partly about creating the future that we want for our children and for our culture, Absolutely. right? 
it's not just a passive give your money to the markets, you know, and beat inflation. No, it's about creating the future that we want. Absolutely. That's investing with soul. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you're saying, I have a soul, <laughs> you know, my soul matters. My soul can influence things, even if it might not be, you know, that detectable. It's still the act that matters. And you will grow your soul if you act mm. with soul. It, it reminds me of what you said earlier of, uh, for whatever reason, this just struck me, that the quantum realm, the physical realm, uh, as yeah. be, be defined technically, is just mm -hmm. a realm of potential. Yeah. And that it's, yes. and it's when it is, interacts with the corporeal world that it becomes actualized. And maybe this is, maybe Wolfgang wouldn't yeah. agree with this. I'm sure he'd be like, well, actually, there's some nuance to that. But it, yeah. it feels as if we as individuals, as human beings who are created, not evolved, not just a sack of cells, but yeah. we are something that's greater yes. than the atoms that make us up. The tripartite cosmos. You have corpus, right? Mm -hmm. It's our bodies. We have anima. It's kind of our soul or our psyche. And we have spiritus. Corpus, anima, spiritus. Yes. Right? Or psyche. Yes. And pneuma. Sometimes it's called P-N-E-U-M-A, like pneumatic breath. Mm. Right? So act with soul. And beyond soul is spirit. Yes. Right? You have body, soul, and spirit. Three parts. Don't ignore spirit and soul just for body. And then don't try to turn body into something purely digital. Yes. And, <laughs> and quantitative. And when we do that, when we and unreal. live in that mediated meta world, and, and yes. you, know, you talk about mediated, yes. essentially mediated finances. We're like, yes, well, I don't, know, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to give it a hedge fund. I don't know. I'm yep. just going to put it in my uh, 401k. I don't know. I'm right. just going to trade it on no. Robinhood and try to do this, but I have no idea what I'm doing. That it, it leaves us in this realm of uncertainty. It leaves us in yes. this realm of potential. But when we step outside of that, and this is kind of, you know, a little quantum, when we step outside of that and we engage with the world around us, with the woods outside, with building something with our hands, moving rocks or something in front of us and invest our life, not just on a sticker top or a, a, a stock ticker, yeah. but we invest our life into people around us, then that is what actualizes who we are meant to be. And we're no longer a sack of probabilities or potential, yeah. but we become actualized into the person that we were created and packed full of breath on this earth to be. Absolutely. Sounds like a good note to end on. It is a great note. Where can, <laughs> uh, where can people, I guess, people can find, find you at drrichardsmith.com. They can find- right, but We're uh, really here to uh, primarily to talk about Wolfgang's work, which is at philos, P-H-I-L-O-S hyphen Sophia. S-O-P-H-I-A, love of wisdom, philosophia.org. .org. The, and if you're listening on a podcast 2.0 certified app, 
uh, speaking of the Web3, you can click the, you can just click right there and the link is right there on your phone as you listen. Yeah. It's amazing. And if you're new to Wolfgang's work, a great way to, great place to start is with the movie that was made about his work and his life a couple, about two years ago called The End of Quantum Reality. Um, it's available on, on our website, philosophia.org. You can, uh, and it's also available at Amazon. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Lucas. Engaging talk. It's been a great talk conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Richard Smith. If you enjoyed it, I ask that you go and check out Dr. Wolfgang's work and also check out the Philosophia Initiative, which has lots of great content that if you enjoy this, you'll enjoy that. Also, if you want to get more out of this episode, share it with a friend by sharing it and having a conversation with someone else about this helps you build your society to be something that is strong, to be something that you want to live in, and it deepens your relationship with those around you. That is all. Thank you. Remember, go out and own your future.